life. So let's practice. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Very good. Now we've said it. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe what you've just said? I mean, just think about our scripture this morning. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. It is such a far-fetched story. I mean, this is wild, crazy stuff, right? An earthquake, an angel, tough and grizzled Roman soldiers stunned into a death-like silence, and Jesus resurrected from the dead. I recently read an op-ed in the New York Times by Jennifer Finney Boylan, where she writes, I call myself a Christian, but even now I cannot honestly tell you if I believe an actual man named Jesus was resurrected. Certain parts of the story feel sketchy. I'm with her. Uh, This is definitely a highly unlikely story. It feels sketchy, and it felt that way from the beginning. It felt that way to its original audience. It felt in its original setting sketchy for one huge reason, two reasons, but starting with the first one. It felt sketchy because of all the women. Now, here in Matthew's gospel, we just heard it read, Matthew 28, verse 1, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And as the story progresses, it's these women who are the first and the key witnesses to say, Jesus' tomb is empty. And by the way, when I was coming back to tell y'all that, I met Jesus living, live, touched him, talked with him. Now, here's the deal. Thankfully to us today, it's not a big deal that women are the key witnesses. I I hope it's not for you. If it is for you, (laughs) we'll pray for you. (laughs) But make no mistakes. In terms of the culture where this happened, where it was written, that's profoundly problematic. At that time, women in the first century Jewish world and in most of the world, women where this was taking place, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, it was not acceptable for a woman to be a witness in a court of law because, now I'm gonna tell you what they thought, all right? I don't need any feedback on this. Um, I'm gonna kind of look away sheepishly as I say it. In that day and age, this is written in so many places. All the historians from then, they say this. Women cannot be counted on as witnesses because they are too giddy, as I'm being giddy, and too impetuous. You see, at this time, writing a story with these women as the key witnesses, it made people say, I don't know about that. Now, now look, over in Luke's gospel, when the women go back to tell the male disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead, the male disciples of Jesus just straight up put it out there. They say, these words seem to the men an idle tale. They did not believe them. Idle tale. In its original language that was written in in Greek, 
This is the word used by physicians to describe the delirious babblings of someone who's very ill. So the male disciples of Jesus, they were so much a part of their culture. They dismissed the account of an empty tomb and a conversation with angels. Why? For several reasons, but one big reason was this terrible reality of the human race that women have been ignored and looked down upon and abused. Now look, if the early Christians were making up the resurrection of Jesus, that was dumb. It was, it was not a good move if you're inventing a religion and you're writing, a, you're fabricating the foundational story and the key witnesses are women, that was not the route to success. If the early Christians were making up the resurrection of Jesus, it is virtually impossible, historically speaking, to imagine that people in that culture would have invented a key story that not only is it hard to believe the actual events, but that puts all the weight of the evidence the key eyewitness evidence on women. Everyone would surely have said at that time, and many skeptics did say, how can you believe a crazy tale on the evidence of a few hysterical women? So a primary reason that the original audience felt exactly the same way that Jennifer Finney Boylan felt, the a key reason that they were skeptical, that the story of the resurrection felt sketchy was because women were the key witness, eyewitnesses. Now, like I said, for most of us, that, that's probably not what makes it feel sketchy to you. But if you're trying to decide if you can trust these stories or not, if you can trust that that's a true account, an eyewitness account, then you should take that awkward piece of evidence into your considerations. We need to read them in their original context. All right. For most people today, I think the sketchiness of the stories has nothing to do with gender. It has everything to do with science. Many people today think that it was fine and reasonable for folks 2,000 years ago to believe in a resurrection but now, like Nacho Libre taught us, I believe in science. We don't believe in magic. We know that dead people decompose. And we know now that there's no coming back. And so oftentimes when people are looking at this, there's kind of a, an arrogance that says, science has come. We now know things about death. People back then, they were superstitious. They, they believed in magic. We know the truth. We know what happens. Here's the problem with, with looking at this historical record in that kind of way. The problem is that the ancient world did not believe in resurrection. They found resurrection just as inconceivable as the modern world. It's all there in their literature. Socrates went on record saying the dead do not raise. Aeschylus says very clearly that there is no such thing as resurrection. Seneca 
went on record that it couldn't happen. Cicero said it didn't happen. The Jewish world of early Christianity knew that the dead did not come back. This is well documented. The permanence of death was not discovered in a laboratory in the 17th century, the 18th century in Europe. This idea that if you're a sophisticated person today, an educated person, you can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That idea is built on a modernist arrogance. These women on their way to Jesus's tomb, they knew the resurrection didn't happen. They were not expecting Jesus to be alive. They set out for the tomb that morning. Why? Because they wanted to have a, some, some sense of contact with the body of their dead master. These women are going to the tomb for the same reason that many of you have gone to the grave of somebody you love. They just wanted to be near Jesus, to pour out their sorrow and their grief in as much peace and quiet as possible. They were not expecting a miracle that morning. Dead people don't come back. In fact, so little did they expect a miracle that the sole subject of their discussion on the way, and we have this in Mark's account of the resurrection, the sole subject of their discussion was, who's going to roll the stone away? Look, if they didn't think that the power of God could roll the stone away, they most assuredly did not think that the power of God was going to raise Jesus from the grave. So to put just a fine point on what I'm trying to say, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, what Eric just read, read to all of us, we have a sketchy story. We have a story that is unlikely because they knew like we know, dead people don't rise again. And it is an untrustworthy story for its original audience. Women just were not seen as reliable witnesses. So to put this story as the climax of Matthew's gospel, this gospel that we've been going through for about seven weeks now, this long, complex, artful, and remarkably literary work, it makes no sense to make this story the climax of it unless this is actual eyewitness testimony. In fact, it doesn't even read like all the rest of the gospel. All the rest of the gospel is literary. It's artistic. It's got all kinds of illusions and allegories going on it. This is just stripped down. It's just quick. In fact, I'm convinced that you have to be a deeply skeptical person, a pre-committed skepticism for you to read the resurrection accounts in the gospels and come away from them feeling like they're fabrications, like there's some long after the fact thing written by someone trying to invent a religion or someone trying to pass on a myth or someone trying to make a grab for power by telling the foundational story in a certain kind of way. The best, most likely explanation for the foundation of a religion to be something as impossible to them and to us as a resurrection told by women as eyewitnesses, which was discrediting in its first context, the most likely explanation is that we're dealing with actual, 
authentic eyewitness testimony of a strange, crazy thing that actually happened. In fact, lots of people like to point out that there are discrepancies between the four gospel accounts of the resurrection. Which, if you talk with lawyers who are dealing with eyewitnesses to events, this lines up pretty good to the way eyewitness testimony plays out. After all, what else would you expect if the God who made the world had finally acted to turn everything around? to take all the forces of chaos and pride and greed and darkness and death and allow them to do their worst, exhausting themselves in the process. If Jesus of Nazareth really was the son of God, what else would you expect? A calm restatement of some deep truths for philosophers to sit around and ponder with their pipes? Do you like that alliteration, ponder with their pipes? I've worked on that one. I mean, what would you expect? What, what would you expect? Would, wouldn't you expect events which blew the world apart and then put it back together in a new way? And this, this actually brings us to the whole point of Easter. The resurrection from the beginning was never seen by the, by the earliest Christians as simply an odd, miraculous event within the present world. No, when they talked about the resurrection, they kind of stopped preaching and just gave the eyewitness testimony. They just put it out there. And they always, when they went on then to comment about it, they always saw it and preached it as, get this, this is the point, the launching of a new creation. You see, all four gospels present Jesus's crucifixion as doing something to the fabric of the universe. And as a result of his crucifixion, the powers that have locked up the world in corruption and decay and death, they were overthrown in the crucifixion. Like Wilson showed us on Friday, in his crucifixion, Jesus is confronting evil in all its forms. And he goes into the darkness in order to take its full weight upon himself. And this is a very deep mystery. And, and I suspect we will never fully understand the crucifixion. But what bit we can see in the Gospels is that in Jesus, in his crucifixion, he goes into the darkness. And as Keith helped us see on Thursday, he goes into the darkness as our representative and therefore as our substitute. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead. And the citadel of death had been stormed by the only power capable of taking away its standard. Jesus had beaten down death, routed the host of Satan, and given, driven the enemy into full flight. And so in the resurrection of Jesus, God is launching a new world. And it's like, look at the resurrection. You see the launch of this new world. It's like a forest in the heart of an acorn. 
the new world that had long been promised by God to Israel, all those old promises about the root of Jesse rising up to rule the nations and in him the nations finding their hope, the passages about the lion and the lamb lying down together and the child playing, all of those old passages are so bizarre. They're just so different. It's gotta be in a different creation where this happens. The resurrection is not simply a miracle, some extraordinary miracle. It is not a display of supernatural power for its own sake. And it's not a special favor to Jesus. What God is doing in the resurrection, it is he is starting something new. He's beginning the new world promised centuries and centuries before. Easter is about the new creation. And it isn't that we can fit the great tornado of resurrection into the small bottle of the old creation. The tornado of the resurrection is launching a new creation. So if you're a scientist and you say to me, like some of my scientist friends have said to me, I'm a scientist, I I can't really believe in this stuff. I want to say to you, like I've said to other friends of mine, fine. Science studies that which we can repeat, which we can test in the laboratory. That's what science is so good at. That's what it does so well. And, and, and that's what it's done so successfully. And we're all so grateful for it. We have HVAC and penicillin, all of these good things. But the whole claim here is that there is something new happening. Something new is being launched upon the world, which in the nature of the case, you wouldn't expect this thing to be able to be repeated in a laboratory. That's the whole point. It's new. Now, on that first Easter morning, something actually happened. Something that not only changed the hearts of the women, it tore a hole in normal history. God's kingdom had come, and there was dawning not just another day of another week in in another century in the history of Israel. This was the start of God's new age, and it will continue until the nations are brought into obedience. And this, the point of Easter, God's new creation, this now brings us to the whole point of being a Christian. The point of being a Christian is nestled here in the resurrection. And notice, there's nothing here about dying and going to heaven. The point of being a Christian is not to die and go to heaven. Now, where do Christians go when they die? They go to heaven. That's good. But really, it's big whoop. It's not the big thing. It's not what the resurrection is most about. In fact, heaven doesn't come up in any of the resurrection stories. You know what comes up in all of them? The new creation right here, right now. The point of being a Christian is not, they don't tell these stories so that we we look forward to the hope of leaving here and going to heaven. No, the point of being a Christian is to be a part of God's new creation project here on earth now. To pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
See, the point of being a Christian is to pray like a Christian, to pray for this earth, that it needs the new creation, that it needs the love and the healing and the joy and the overcoming of injustice. And it's not just to pray. The point of being a Christian is to pray like Jesus taught us, and it is to labor, to bring the life of heaven to birth in actual physical earthly reality here and now. I'm not saying there's not a heaven. I'm not saying that grandma is, my grandma is there, my mother is there, I'm grateful, but they are there waiting. The Bible doesn't end with all of us going off, escaping this place. It ends with heaven coming to earth and earth being renewed. And Jesus was like the advance showing of that. The whole point of Easter, the whole point of Christianity is not about getting out of here, being taken away from here. It is about being part of God's new creation project here now in this old, tired, evil, and death-infested world. To go into those places in our city, those environments of despair where people don't believe that change is possible, where people don't believe that God's rule can already be real in our school system, our banking system, our government, our neighborhoods, our families. To be a Christian is when we are faced with the terrible dreadlocks of mutual hatred and suspicion, with rival stories of who did what, rival stories of who's the victim, rival stories of suffering and atrocity, to be a Christian is to not turn away from those places. It's to not quit. It's to not give in to the idea that change is impossible. To be a Christian is to turn toward those relationships and to pray for and labor for God to open hearts to the resurrection of Jesus. And and we can go into places where people don't want things to change because of the resurrection, and that's exactly what the early Christians did. Do you see it? The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and the pains and, the, and, the, and all of the brokenness of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic. God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over all. To believe in the resurrection involves saying that there is a new way of being human and we're committed to it. This is what it means to be a Christian. And even though doing this, when we do this, it so often seems useless what we're doing. We tried this and that. We keep grinding away and it just doesn't seem to get us very far. And yet we are promised that when Jesus returns and completes the work of the new creation, 
We're told in the scriptures that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers the seas. I love just reminding you, that don't make no sense. Water is the sea. That's like saying streets of gold so pure that it's clear as glass. Like that doesn't make, gold doesn't get clearer when it gets purer. What does it mean to say there's coming a day when the glory of God, in other passage, the knowledge of God will cover the earth. Like what, the knowledge of God will be all, what does this mean? It means that in every square inch, the closest you've ever experienced God, that's just a foretaste. It's gonna be a thousand times that in every industry, in every household, in every valley, in every mountain, in every story, in every moment of your life, in my life. This whole earth is going to be flooded with God's goodness and grace and it's gonna lift up the earth. But here's the thing. All of the things that we do now, scripture tells us, everything that we do now that has been of God and of the spirit, everything we do now with God, for God, of God, with the spirit, it will be there somehow when God makes all things new. So look, school teachers, it is so hard right now. And you, and you can get home at the end of the day or the end of a week, right? And think, nothing. I just, it didn't work. Families. We can get stuck, can't we? In decades and generations of brokenness. And you can try and try and try to find reconciliation and nothing happens, right? <laughs> At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the longest chapter in the Bible that reflects on the resurrection. It's the longest reflection on the resurrection in all the Bible. And, and we're going to start going through it next week, in fact. We're going to go verse by verse through the whole chapter over the course of Easter. But you get to the end of this chapter, and it's just amazing as he's reflecting on the resurrection that it means life here now matters. And the very last thing, the last thing that Paul says after the longest reflection in scripture on resurrection, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in to despair. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Every time you put yourself out there for the relationship, for the work, for the justice, for the beauty, every time you've put yourself out there, God gathers that up into his hands and it might not be showing out now. It might not be producing anything now, but it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus said, every cup of cold water that you give to somebody in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, that will not go unnoticed, unrewarded, or forgotten in the new heavens and the new earth. There is going to be a continuity between the present world and God's future world. What we do in the present matters because it is actually a part of the future, which we are a part of when Christ comes again to renew the world. If you're skeptical of Christianity, if you're an atheist or an agnostic, I just, I want to say to you, even if you can't believe in the resurrection, don't you want to? 
Don't you want this to be true? So many of my friends who are not Christians, you believe deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, diminishing the equity gaps, caring for the environment. But do you see that if you believe that this material world was caused by accident, and that the world and everything in it will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, don't you see that this undermines any motivation to make the world a better place? Doesn't it make sense to you why so many of your friends aren't doing enough? Why sacrifice for the needs of the planet or the needs of others if in the end, nothing we do will make any difference? But if the resurrection of Jesus happened. That means there's infinite hope and there is reason to pour yourselves out for the needs of the world. The message of the resurrection is that the world matters. Now, I want to end this message by quoting a great, Episcopal preacher, pastor, Fleming Rutledge. At the end of a masterful sermon, she preached on this very passage. She said to her church something that, I mean, after reading her sermon, I was like, I'm just going to copy. <laughs> I want to say it to you. May God confirm the resurrection of Jesus in your life, in my life, now, and in the hour of our death, so that we may remember the angel who descends like lightning from heaven, who rolls the stone of doubt and fear from our hearts, who invites us into the very bastion of death to show us that the tomb is empty, that the enemy has been routed, that the unthinkable and the impossible has happened. Christ is risen. He is risen and he goes before us and we will see him. And may this incredible message give you joy today and always and may the God of Jesus Christ, our Lord, be praised forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.